Right, has everyone got their Bibles? How are we doing on paper Bibles? Oh, we're getting there, we're getting there, slowly but surely, slowly but surely. Well, today, as many of you know, we have been travelling through the book of Luke, and we've been doing that pretty consistently over the last six, seven weeks, but today we've come to a pivotal point in our journey through Luke's account of the life ministry of Jesus. We have been, over the last, I would say, six, seven weeks, uh, been walking through and exploring a series of events where Jesus has been slowly uh, revealing his power and his authority to his disciples primarily, but also to all the communities that they visited. You might remember we looked at the calming of the storm where Jesus was awoken by the disciples because they were fearful of losing their lives to this storm and they witnessed how Jesus calmed that storm and it became peaceful, which in itself again continued to create fear in them because to them and their upbringing and what they'd been taught only God could calm and control the elements. So they were left in confusion. We then, the next story on, Jesus was sailing to the other side of the Lake of Galilee to meet the demon-possessed man. This poor man who for many years had been possessed by legion, legions, many demons, and Jesus through his power and authority over evil, was able to exercise this man and bring him to freedom and peace in itself, a wonderful thing. We then looked at the healing and salvation of that poor suffering woman who'd had to bleed for many, many years. But as we explored on that Sunday, she wasn't just healed of her physical ailment, because of her faith, if I could just touch, touch the hem of Jesus' cloak, I would be healed. What faith? And that faith, as we read, led her to receive salvation as well. We then saw in that same um, event, Jesus going off as he was uh, on his way to raise Jairus' daughter from death, showing us the authority and power that he has over death itself. And in last week, John preached a wonderful message for us, exploring the feeding of the 5,000 and how the, the disciples were part of that, that, that miracle. If I encourage you, if you've if you haven't been with us for these last few weeks, go back and watch all of these sermons and see how this all ties together. But this series of events, they were purposeful. They were intentional in the journey of revealing the true identity of who Jesus was. Particularly 
And we keep coming back to this because it is relevant to them and to us today, particularly to the disciples, the very people who Jesus had been discipling, had been training to continue the ministry once he was no longer with them. These events had left the disciples confused. We read this multiple times. They had left them confused. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, praise God that they were slowly coming to a revelation of who he was, albeit not a complete revelation, but they were on that journey. Today we explore a pinnacle point in this series of events, a powerful conversation between Jesus and his disciples, a conversation in which we see Jesus not only ask them who the people, who the crowds think that he was, and then who they themselves thought Jesus was, but then he goes on to give them a glimpse into the mission that he must fulfill before then explaining quite bluntly the cost of those wishing to follow him. So if your Bible's with you, please turn with me to Luke 9. It will be on the screen. Luke 9, uh, today we're starting at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is life to us, life to our bones, life to our souls. We thank you for your word this, uh, this morning, Lord. And I just pray that you open our hearts, you open our ears, so that we may hear and receive what you need to tell us this morning. 
May I become transparent and your people only ever hear and see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, quite a, quite a chunky, it, well, it might not be a chunky passage we just read, but there's a lot of fruit in there, isn't there? There's a lot to chew over. So what we're going to do today is we're going to split the exploration of this uh, conversation that we've just read into two parts. It's two parts. Today, we're going to look at the disciples' revelation up till this point, and also Jesus' mission. Next week, so you'll have to come next week, Next week, we're going to look at the second part of this, the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship. But to help us today, I want to focus on three key questions that the passage naturally demands of us. Who did the people say Jesus was? Who did the disciples say Jesus was? And who... Do people say Jesus is today? Who do people say Jesus is today? So let's work through this. So back in uh, verse 18, our first verse, it says this, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am. Now, from reading the other gospel accounts of this event, we are told that Jesus and his followers are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus has been ministering for quite a while now, and we've seen that as we've journeyed, preaching the kingdom of God and performing miracles in many villages and many towns. And it's fair to say that there would be strong views from everybody who heard or saw Jesus as to who they think he might be. Remember, during this time, Jesus had sent his disciples out into the villages for the first time to minister, giving them the power and the authority to heal sick and cast out demons, as Jeremy preached to us a couple of weeks ago. And in doing this, while they were out in the villages and the towns doing this, they would, have, they would have heard the word on the street, wouldn't they? They would have been listening to what people were thinking about who this man Jesus is. Now, I don't think that it was a coincidence that Jesus chose this point to ask these questions. Who do people say I am? Who do the crowds say I am? And what was his reply? Or what was their reply, sorry? And they answered, verse 19, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So you can see this is the popular opinions of the people of the time. There's a bit of confusion as to who he was. Now, these ideas were a common assumption, and they were supported a few, cha- a few verses back, forgive me, by Herod the Tetrarch. 
So if we jump back in Luke 9, but back to uh, verses 7 and 9, we read this. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some, John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So, just briefly looking at this, the first belief that Jesus was John the Baptist was clearly false. As Herod himself, or he ordered it, had had John's head cut off. But that wouldn't have stopped Herod being fearful that John had come back to life. You could read that back in Matthew's Gospel. But the reality is, was Jesus John the Baptist? No. Clear scripture, clearly, if, and even back then, the people could have clearly have seen that he wasn't John the Baptist. So the second belief was that Jesus was the expected Elijah. Elijah had been caught up to heaven without dying hundreds of years before. And the popular expectation in Judaism was that Elijah would return at the end of time before the day of the Lord to reconcile the hearts of man. But the misconception was that Elijah would physically return himself. But that wasn't what the prophet Malachi had prophesied. Jesus tells us that John the Baptist had in fact come, and I quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah. You can read that back in Mark 9. Thus fulfilling Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would prepare the way for the Messiah. So was Jesus... Elijah? No, he wasn't Elijah. The third belief, as we read, the third common thought process of the people out in the towns was that Jesus was a prophet like the prophets of old. In the first century, Jews expected a final prophet like Moses, as promised by God through Moses back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and again I quote, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. So the question that we must ask, as we have done for the other two beliefs, is was Jesus a prophet? Well, first and foremost, no, Jesus wasn't a raised from the dead prophet of old. But yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was a prophet. But as we know today, he was much more. He was much more than just a prophet. So we come to our second question. What do the disciples, or who do the disciples think Jesus is? Verse 20. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. In Mark's account, we read Peter saying, you are the Christ. And in Matthew's account, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They'd come to believe Jesus was the Christ. But they'd come to believe something that others had already believed and others had already declared. And we have seen this as we've journeyed through Luke. The angels declared Jesus was the Christ back in Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. The demons had declared it in Luke 4, 41. And the demons also came out of, of, the, of many crying, you are the Son of God. But he, Jesus, rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And Jesus himself had told them when he opened the scroll in the temple to read the prophecy of Isaiah before declaring, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But now Peter, as the spokesman quite often for the disciples, finally declares what they, as his disciples, had come to believe in their own hearts that Jesus was the foretold Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But this declaration by the disciples tells us two things. Firstly, they still only saw in part. They still only saw in part. They were yet to come to the full revelation that Jesus was in fact God, not just as they declared the Christ of God. Can you see that? Secondly, that they have much more to learn about the kind of Messiah that Jesus had come to be. Jesus doesn't leave it long to introduce that kind of Messiah that he had come to be. For the first time in Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus clearly teaches the twelve that his role as the anointed Messiah, the Christ, will involve suffering and death. We read this in Luke 9 verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This would have been a confusing, a confusing thing for the, the disciples to understand, because from the Jewish perspective, this isn't what Messiah was supposed to be coming to do. The Jews expected the king of a Daviatic line who would deliver Israel from foreign bondage, i.e. the Roman Empire at that time, and who would restore the glories of Israel's golden age. 
not to come and suffer and be killed. Which is why in Matthew's account of this story, Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes him saying, and I quote, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus, Jesus turned and said to Peter, what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It was man who expected the coming Messiah to be this political figure who would kick out the Romans. But God, God's Messiah was so much more. At this point in time, the disciples couldn't comprehend the scale of this mission Jesus was on. It was much bigger than them. It was much bigger than Israel. It was much bigger than the world at that time. Jesus' mission began when sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they chose to disobey God, choosing to listen to the cunning snake, a servant of evil, a servant of the devil himself, and eat the forbidden fruit. This act had consequences, as many of us in this room know. For them directly, it was banishment from God's presence to live infected with the sin of their action, to live separated from God, their creator. But the consequences spread throughout all time to every person, us included. Because we are all born into a sinful world and we ourselves naturally lean to sin. Our flesh craves it and we live rebellious to God because of the fall that happened many, many years ago. We all know it. We all know it in our hearts that we live sinful lives. If we're honest with ourselves, it's too easy for us to live a sinful life because our natural self wants to go down those roads. And one day, a righteous God will bring this world to an end and every human who has ever been born, irrespective of where you were born in the world, in what time period you were born, whether in the future already gone, sorry, in the past already gone, or in the future to come, will face the righteous judgment of a holy God. The judgment that no human being, no human being can avoid. But, and don't we love the but? The but's the best bit about it. But, and this is my favourite part. This is where this is where the saviour comes in. 
right? But because of God's great love for his created human beings, humankind, he put in motion a plan, praise God, a way for sinful humanity relationship to be restored with God Almighty, their creator. Isn't that a wonderful thing? A pure, unblemished sacrifice must be made for the sin of humanity. Something no human who is inherently sinful can do. So what must be done? God himself, praise God, came and accomplished this mission. He did it himself. That blows my mind. Every, I mean, I, I, I've been a Christian many years. It still blows my mind. Okay? God chose to come and accomplish this mission himself, being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin named Mary. He grew and experienced life as one of us, but he was without sin. Very important to remember. Jesus, the God-man, fully human, but yet fully divine. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who 33 years after his birth was willingly beaten. He was willingly mocked and spat on, willingly allowed his created humans to hang him on his created tree. To be put to death, a criminal's death. But as he hung there on that tree, as a sacrificial lamb, he willingly took upon himself all the sins of humanity before dying and raising from the dead three days later, conquering death, conquering evil, and providing a way for humanity to return to him, their God, his cre- their, our creator. Does that not get you excited? then don't be afraid to say it. Because it excites me. And if I'm the only one up here weeping and getting excited about it, I look a wally. Right? Right? We should get excited about that. We should hallelujah those things. Because I don't think sometimes we realise the consequence if Jesus, sorry, if God hadn't done that. There would be no hope for us. And we would have one path pretty destructive path praise God this event is the most wonderful gift that humanity has ever and will ever receive and it is freely given to anybody who calls upon the name of Jesus and believes him to be their Lord and Saviour through faith alone in him faith alone in him and then turn from a life, a sinful life in this renewed body, this renewed life that we are given and live a life dedicated to his word and his ways. What a gift. And if we do that, church if we do that friends if there are people here today that you haven't given your lives to Christ I implore you I encourage you to think and seriously consider this because for those of us who have oh 
We are saved from the coming judgment of God. And we get to dwell with God. Not just for eternity, but now. Now. The disciples believed Jesus, their Christ, was only there to liberate them as a political leader. But he was so much more than that, as we've just heard and read. And they will come to know of this truth in time. This was part of the reason why, in in verse 21, in this passage that we've been looking at, Jesus says, and he strictly charged and uh, commanded them to tell this to no one. Bit confusing. Why did he say this? Because proclaiming that Jesus, the Jewish Christ, would need to suffer and die, would have at that time created misunderstanding amongst the people. It would have created misunderstanding. And it would have made Jesus' important ministry at that time a whole heap more difficult. What a moment this was. What a moment for the disciples, this moment of revelation for the, for the disciples that their teacher, their rabbi, was the long-awaited Christ. It was a moment of joy, a moment of celebration. I don't think the words on the page do it justice as to the emotion that they probably had shown in that moment. Which is why I like to put emotion into when I'm, when I'm reading God's word. Because the reality is there would have been a lot of emotion. But it would have also have been a moment of continued confusion as they tried to come to terms with Jesus telling them that he must die and he must raise from the dead. And the global and eternal consequences of him doing that, that incredible act. So what about today? What about today? We can ask the same question, can't we? Who do people today say Jesus is? We are so blessed. Humanity today is so blessed to have the full revelation of who Jesus is and a full understanding of what he came to do. We don't have to try to understand the impact of this incredible event like the disciples had to. We have it clearly explained in our paper Bibles that we bring with us every Sunday and revealed to us via the Holy Spirit. That amazing gift, oh, the Holy Spirit, what an amazing gift that we receive, that, that every believer in Jesus receives, who himself, and we can forget this sometimes, who himself was present throughout every event that we read. He was there. The Holy Spirit was there. It's the same Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Don't ever underestimate that the Holy Spirit can't reveal to you the truth of what you're reading. Of course he can. He was there. But what about today? Well, the Evangelical Alliance, (coughs) excuse me, The Church of England and the organisation HOPE commissioned the Barna Group 
to conduct a survey asking this question. What do people in England think of Jesus, Christians and evangelism? So the, back in December 2016 this was done. They interviewed, excuse me, 2,000 young or youth aged between 11 and 18 and 2,500 adults above the age of 18 and they printed their results. And part of the survey, they asked this question, how those people viewed Jesus. And I just want to show you the first response. So this was, did they believe Jesus existed? Or as, well, yeah, it, did he exist? And out of the adults, 60% believed he was a real person who actually lived. 22% of adults that he was a mythical or fictional character, 18% didn't know. Out of the youth, 54% a real person who actually lived, just over half. 27% that he was a mythical or fictional character, and 19% don't know. And it's worth mentioning that this study wasn't on church people, it was just on a group of youth and a group of adults. Some had faith, some didn't. Okay? So this was, what did Jesus exist? The next slide is even more interesting. What did they think Jesus' identity? Who was he? 21% of adults and 22% of youth believed that he was God in human form. Only 21% of adults and 22% of youth out of that group of 4,500 people. 17% of adults, 13% of youth believed it was just a normal human. Just a normal human being. 29% of adults, 29% of youth believed that he was just a prophet. 22% adults, 27% youth believed Jesus is a mythical or fictional character. 9%, 7% don't know. 2%, 1% believe something totally different, which they didn't feel was worth putting on there. It's pretty shocking, isn't it? Granted, this was back in 2016, because they don't do this sort of studies very often, but it's pretty shocking. Well, I thought it was shocking anyway. So, what about other religions of today and other um, uh, uh, worldviews today? Well, let's, let's listen to a couple of uh, quotes by some people who represent these other religions and worldviews. Um, in Islam, they do believe in Jesus, they believe he was a prophet. And the Egyptian uh, Ahmed al-Tayyib is currently considered to be the most influential Muslim. In a speech, he said this, We believe in Jesus just as we believe in Muhammad. Jesus is an important messenger from God after Muhammad. Muslims don't believe Jesus was crucified because something so shameful cannot happen to a true prophet. What about atheism? Still a worldview. 
Let's listen to, uh, to an outspoken, um, a very brilliant man, but an outspoken atheist, Richard Dawkins, who said this, Jesus publicly advocated niceness and one is the f- what, it was one of the first to do so. What is extraordinary, oh, sorry, that is extraordinary because we have come to existence due to a random process of evolution which in fact fosters selfishness, violence and indifference. Based on this theory of evolution, this super niceness of Jesus is just plain dumb. What about the New Age movement? How many of you heard of the New Age movement? You can't seem to get away from the New Age movement in this day and age. Well, Jesus is an avatar. He's an avatar that's showing the way. Bill Muhlenberg, who I believe is not a New Age movement, but has done extensive writings on it, explains that the New Age movement believers that Jesus is just another avatar, an an incarnation of deity. He did not really come to die for our sins, but to simply show us the way. Like so many other great spiritual teachers, he came to guide us in our spiritual journey and to help us embrace our own enlightenment and cosmic consciousness. This is people of today, in our time frame, 2,000 years on. What's going wrong? What's happened? Nothing's changed, has it? Nothing's changed in the viewpoint and the worldviews of people still struggling to come to terms in who Jesus actually was. Who do you think Jesus is? Now, some in this room, of course, will be Christians. They'll know who Jesus is intimately. But there may be some in this room who are still on that journey of trying to understand who he is. Who do you think he is? Because I'll tell you one thing, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a mythical person. Actually, history can prove that one. There is so much evidence for Jesus being a real person. There's so much evidence that supports everything we read in this Bible or the claims of the Bible. He's God. God incarnate. Our Lord, our Saviour, our King. And he's open arms to every person who calls upon his name as Lord and Saviour. If they would just but believe him to be so. Invite the band up, please. If we were to walk out of this church now, who knows, maybe one day, one day we might just sporadically do this and we might all just get up and go out into town and ask some of these questions in the town. Okay? If we were to walk out of this church now and ask people in Whitney who they thought 
Jesus was, yes, of course, we would bump into to fellow believers. We would. At some point, we would. But we would speak to more people who didn't believe, who might have similar answers to some that I found. As an example, Jesus is just a man. He's just a, a wisdom giver who tried to make the world a better place. Or that he was a marketing genius because he got so many people to believe in him. These are some of the views of people in our streets. And this is, this is the one that got me. If David Copperfield was around in the day of Jesus, Jesus would be him. So many different views of Jesus. The church, I'll be honest with you, when I sat, when I sat down and, and prepared for this message, I sat there and I, and I was like, Lord, if in 2,000 years the world around us still hasn't come to truly know who you are. Just people in our, own, in our own area here, if they haven't in 2,000 years come to know who you are through all the work of the disciples, through all the work of the church age, what, what, how am I, what am I supposed to do? Little old me, what am I supposed to do? It was one of those moments. You know, a little bit of lack of faith, if I'm being truly honest with you. You know, well, how am I supposed to, 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 to do this? How am I supposed to make disciples who you've called me to do and to win hearts, the hearts of mankind back from the clutches of darkness into your glorious light? How am I to do this? And in his goodness, he reminded me of a verse that I would quite often share when people ask me the same question. And actually a saying that I have said here before that I often say to myself, and it's simply this. Therefore, Jesus, as uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Yeah, God, we, we, we sometimes don't catch on to that. God making his appeal through us. And the saying I often say is, I am an ambassador of Christ and I'm a representative of the kingdom. He reminded me of these things. And he reminded me that it's not my job to win the world to Christ. It's not my job to win the world to Christ, but to be a witness, a faithful witness, wherever I may be, to the person standing directly in front of me. Not the world, the person standing directly in front of me. Whether that's me standing in front of my work colleague, whether that's me standing in the supermarket and the cash speaking to the cashier, whether that's me going to my favourite place here, uh, Cafe Nero, and asking for my, you know, my uh, uh, flat white, the person behind the counter. That is my responsibility, to be faithful and to be willing for God to work through me 
in that moment to that person. Not to win the world. I can't win the world. God can. I can only be who God's made me to be and be faithful in who he's made me to be. It is only through my faithfulness to God as he makes his appeal through me via the guidance of and in the power of his Holy Spirit who dwells with me 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. In whatever situation, however scary it might feel. Because it is pretty scary, isn't it, when you start sharing your faith to, to Joe Blobs out in the street. That is how ground is claimed back from the devil. And that is how souls are win for Christ. And the key to how effective we will be for Jesus and his kingdom all comes to how, down to how we view and how we practice being the disciples of Jesus. Which is the second part of this story of this event that we will pick up next week. Because I think in that is the key. But I implore you today, if there are those here who are still on that journey of knowing who Jesus is, I implore you to come and speak to one of us. Just come and chat it for it. We're not weird. I know it can sometimes feel like Christians are weird. We're not weird, alright? We're normal people. Some of us have got some pretty checkered pasts as well, I can tell you that. But only by the power of God we have been transformed and made new. And we can share that wonderful gift with you and, and introduce you to the God that we know. There's a prayer area over here that has already been said. Come and receive prayer. Again, it's not weird. We just want to pray for you because we love you. But don't walk out those doors without asking... Or, or, or just finding out more. In a minute, we're going to we're going to I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to uh, close with our our last song. Who knows? Is is God pulling at your heartstrings now? He could well be. It's what happened to me. I just kept feeling him pull, pull, pull. When are you going to give in? When are you going to give in? When are you going to surrender yourself? Maybe during this time of worship is that moment for you and for you just to surrender all to Christ. But next week, we'll pick up where we finish today and we'll see how this all ties in together. So uh, there's a little hook for you to make sure you're here next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we can't imagine what that moment was like for your disciples when they came to that revelation that you were Christ. But Lord, I mean, how much they still had to learn that you weren't just the Christ of God, but you were God himself. A revelation that we know today and we are so thankful for. 
There are no words that can comprehend. There is nothing that we can do to even give us a glimpse into the sacrifice that you made for us. Your body beaten, bruised, barely unrecognisable to those who would have known you. Hung on that cross, died on that cross, taking with us, Lord, and paying that ransom that was owed. But praise God that three days later you rose as you promised. Praise God that everything you said come to pass and everything that hasn't yet come to pass will because you are a faithful God. Who are we but mere man that you would think of us and go to those extremes for us? Heavenly Father, I pray today that whether you have been a Christian in this place for 40, 50 years, however long it might be, or whether you are the very tipping point of asking whether I should follow this Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you touch the hearts of every person in this room, that you bring such a presence such a peace to everyone's heart, such a, a moment, a glimpse maybe into uh, what life will be like you for eternity. Help us, the, the things of this world, to dim away so that we only ever live and see your glorious light. those people, Lord, who are on the brink. I pray for them particularly. I pray, Lord, that you draw particularly close to them. That they may know and come to understand who you are, the love you have for them, and the gift of salvation that you have for them. Be with us all, Lord, I pray, as we head into this week. Help us at this point in this journey, this two-week journey, to understand we don't have to win the world. We just have to be faithful. Faithful, Lord, in our whole beings and allow you to work in and through us to that one person who we're standing in front of. No one else in that moment, just that one person in front of us. And help us as we prepare to explore the rest of this powerful conversation next week. In Jesus' name we pray.